Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. On August 16, 1987, Northwest Airlines Flight 225 crashed shortly after taking off from the Detroit airport, killing 155 people. Only one person survived, a four-year-old from Tempe, Arizona named Cecilia. News accounts say that when the rescuers found Cecilia, they did not even believe that she had been on the plane. Investigators first assumed that Cecilia had been a passenger in one of the cars on the highway into which the plane had crashed. But when the manifest for the flight was discovered, there was Cecilia's name. Cecilia survived because even as the plane was falling, Cecilia's mother, Paula Chacon, unbuckled her own seatbelt, got down on her knees in front of her daughter, wrapped her arms around Cecilia, and then would not let her go. Nothing could separate that child from her parents' love, neither tragedy nor disaster, neither the fall nor the flames that followed, neither height nor depth, and neither life or death. Such is the love for Christ for us. He left heaven, lowered himself to us, and then covered us with his sacrifice of his own body for our sin. That's part of what we're going to be looking at this morning. Look at verse 26 with me. Jesus says, If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, my father will honor. We begin with Jesus giving a definition of what we call a disciple. He then tells us that part of the process of agreeing to follow him involves our service to him. Well, let's look at it a little deeper what it means to be a disciple, which of course is the root word of the word discipline. There are disciples for all kinds of people and causes and always has been. For example, the Greeks were very fascinated into the world in which they lived. They were keen observers. They noticed, for instance, that rivers kept flowing. They believed that no man could step into the same river for two reasons. One, because if you stepped into the river the second time, it would no longer be the same river you stepped in because the river you initially stepped in was now downstream. The second reason was you wouldn't be the same person anyway. You you would at least be a few seconds older, and so everything was changing. And so they were captivated in some schools of thinking of this whole thing about change and motion. And so certain philosophers would get into the observation of this, and they would gather their disciples around them. They would all be into this change and motion thing. Now, in addition to this, the Jews also had a certain approach to discipleship. They were those who prided themselves on being the disciples of Moses. They believed that Moses had received the law from God and that his law was a matter of principle. But they also believed that the principles needed some amplification so that the people could understand exactly what it was that God wanted them to do. And so they had their rabbis and the school of the rabbis would gather around they would endeavor to interpret the law so that they could understand the principles that God had ordained 
But when you talked about the discipleship of the Greeks, it meant a discipleship of philosophy. They related to it on the basis of philosophical thought. But when you talked about the disciples of Moses, you were talking about a discipleship of relationship, of principle. They were just trying to figure out all these principles. Now, out of that group came what were known in the scriptures as the disciples of the Pharisees. Let me say that the Pharisees, in some ways, have gotten a bad rap. Now, we all think of the Pharisees as hypocrites, and sure enough, many of them were. We all know that they were busy pulling the sawdust out of their own eye while ignoring the plank, or I'm sorry, in others' eyes, while ignoring the planks in their own, as the Lord humorously put it. And so we don't like the Pharisees very much. But if we are going to be fair to them, they believe very firmly in the law that was given to Moses. And so they were concerned about what the people, that they might unwittingly break that law. And so to make sure that they didn't unwittingly break the law, they made everything abundantly clear. They added 365 extra prohibitions and 250 extra commandments to the law. And they gathered around them these people who taught these prohibitions and taught these commandments, and these people were required to identify with them. Now, as far as they were concerned, it was just a matter of procedure. They got their disciples, but it was a discipleship of procedure. You do this or you don't do that. You go here, but you can't go there. And so they built a following of people, but it was not a relationship built on a philosophy, not on the basis of a principle, but a relationship of procedure. Then the Lord speaks, of course, of the disciples of John the Baptist. They were also different kind of disciples. John the Baptist has looked around, him, around himself. He didn't like what he saw. And so he started what we would call a protest movement. He said things aren't the way that they ought to be, and so there's going to be some changes around here. He was a wild man. He was outside the establishment. He preached down in the wilderness because the people wouldn't allow him to preach in their churches. He didn't wear ecclesiastical garb. He wore sort of wild clothing, had a big long beard all matted with honey and locust. And his hair was all over the place, and he probably waved his arms around a lot. He wore hippie clothes and had grasshopper legs stuck between his teeth. I think if he were alive today, he would have went to a Calvary chapel. <laughs> so there's no shortage of illustrations of discipleship at the time of the Lord Jesus. The Greeks had them. There were also the disciples of Moses. There were also the disciples of the Pharisees. And there were disciples of John the Baptist. But the key was there was a relationship between the leader, the master, or the rabbi, whatever you want to call it, and those who were listening to his teaching and responding to it. Now, into this situation comes the Lord Jesus. And he does something quite different from all the rest of them. He also invites people to become his disciples. But his relationship is not a relationship of philosophy. It's not a relationship of principle. It's not a relationship of procedure. And it's not a relationship of protest. He makes a very simple invitation to people, and it is this. Come unto me. 
He issues a very simple command to the people. He goes to them as they are mending nets, if they are fishermen, or gathering money, if they are tax collectors, and he says quite simply, follow me. And as he picks out his first disciples, we read in Mark's Gospel a very beautiful, poignant little expression that we can slip over if we're not reading it carefully. He selected his disciples, and here it is, that they might just be with him. Now, how do we get the picture? The difference between the disciples of Christ and the disciples of all these other people and movements was that it was a, with a relationship to a person. Now, we can't stress that enough because that is the absolute essence of Christian discipleship. And that is breathtakingly fabulous. Yea, Jesus, no one is like you. But how do we apply that to our daily lives? Jesus says, if anyone serves me, let him follow me. Well, follow me in what? And so surrendering to the will of the Father to the point that I am willing to allow him to plant me anywhere he wants to and then to die right there. The way to know Jesus is to see him on the cross and then to follow him in that kind of life. Because of what happens to us when we follow him in that way. God plants you in that place, that difficult place, in that difficult marriage or that difficult workplace or you're in that difficult health situation or whatever it might be. And people look at you and they say, nothing can be worth that. Are you out of your mind? Get out any way that you can. But you say, no, I'm going to stay right here. And they don't understand. And what they don't understand is what happens between you and the Lord that can only happen in that place. So I guess it really comes down to this one question. Are we more concerned about being comfortable or conformable? What I'm trying to say is if we are only looking to have a comfortable life, then we will protect our plans and our desires, and we will save our lives and never allow ourselves to be planted. But if we yield ourselves and let God plant us, we will have the joy of being fruitful to the glory of God. We learn from the master who, when his soul was troubled, breathed this prayer, Father, glorify your name. In other words, if I must lose my health, glorify your name through my sickness. If I must lose my wealth, glorify your name through my poverty. If I must lose my status, glorify your name through my humiliation. If I must lose my life, then glorify your name through my death. Now, how and why can we possibly say such things? Because we know the Bible says that all things work together for our good to those who follow Christ. And what does that good look like? God defines good for us in Romans 8.29. The text says that the process is for those who have been called according to God's purpose. And what is God's purpose? 
According to verse 29 of that chapter, it is to conform us to the image of his son. And that is what is ultimately good. Anything that will bring us a more accurate reflection of the quality of Christ in and through our lives is good. Whatever it takes, pain or pleasure, is good if it conforms us to his likeness. That's God's goal in the process of any pain that we go through. He takes all of that and permits and makes it a part of the process to bring us to reflect the image of Christ. Listen to the words of Isaiah 61.3. I will console those who mourn, to give them the beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for a spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. It says in that verse that we will be the planting of the Lord. Now the end result of that is John 12:24, where we read, Most assuredly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. And the result of that, the end of that verse says that Isaiah says that happens in order that God may be glorified. When we give ourselves fully to him, that verse says he will give us beauty instead of ashes. You know, Michelangelo carved the sculpture David out of a huge hunk of stone. Now, other artists take colored oils and canvases, and they can create great masterpieces. Even beams of steel are bent and welded into strange-looking monuments in some of our city squares. But I have never seen an artist even attempt to make something beautiful from ashes. Only God can do that. And if we follow his son, God will one day honor us. The story is told by Spurgeon of a prince and a servant traveling through a hostile region who were taken captive by the enemy. And after being beaten and thrown into a dungeon, the prince developed a terrible fever and it looked as though his days were numbered. Semi-conscious as he was, however, he didn't miss the opportunity to alert his servant when the guard fell asleep one day. Get his keys and get out of here, the prince said. I'm too weak. I can't make it, but you go. This is your chance. The prince answered, The servant, where you are, there I will be. If need be, we will both die together. Now, two weeks later, the prince's father launched an invasion and freed his imprisoned son in the process. Oh, father, said the prince immediately upon his return, even as my servant stayed with me in danger, suffered with me in sickness, stood by me in my imprisonment, honor him now. And the servant was honored throughout the kingdom. The same is true with you. The Lord knows you could opt to escape, that the cross and obedience is not always easy. The Lord knows that many of you are truly paying a price to follow him. You've been passed over by promotion at work because you stood for integrity. Or you stayed in a relationship because you've committed yourself to matrimony. Forget it, the world says. 
here's the key to yourself. Now get out. Go on. Be free. But you said no. My master, my prince, my savior has called me to follow him. And even when it's not easy, I will stay by him. I've got good news for you. I've taken this stand by the Father's Son, the Prince of Peace. After the invasion, when he brings you safely into heaven, you will be honored greatly. For the Father honors those who honors his Son. The promises to the one who serves Jesus is that the Father will honor him. And really, guys, all human honors pale into insignificance compared to the eternal honor God will bestow on those who love and serve his son. Although, that can be hard to accept sometimes, can it? Pastor Bill, if you knew everything in my past, you would kick me out of this church. Honey, if you knew everything in my past, you wouldn't come to this church. The point is, we all need a Savior and he is for us. In his book, A Case for Hope, Lee Strobel writes, I was watching the Discovery Channel a while back. They were showing a nature film about a family of ducks, and it showed the mother duck paddling around the pool with her 12 cute little ducklings. After the swim, the mother hopped onto the cement lip of the pool and began waddling away, and the babies lined up to follow her. The first one jumped up, but he plopped back down into the water. So he tried harder and jumped higher and made it to the lip and began following his mom. The second one jumped up and the third and so on, all falling in behind their mother. But the twelfth little duckling tried jumping up and only made it two-thirds of the way before falling back into the pool. So he swam around a little and jumped again, but this time he only made it halfway. He was getting frantic, flapping his little wings. He kept jumping and failing. It was clear he wasn't going to make it. Guess what the mother duck did? I'm sorry to say that she just kept on walking. The narrator explained dispassionately. The mother will abandon that duckling because it's probably too weak to survive. That sounds cruel, but that's just the way nature is. I wonder this morning, have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt that you're too morally weak and that your spiritual efforts fall too short? that you don't matter enough to God to warrant his concern, that when you stumble into sin, God is going to just keep on walking and not turn back to try and help you. Thankfully, the Bible portrays God as the good shepherd who has 100 sheep, but even if just one of them gets lost, he doesn't give up on it. Rather, he launches an all-out search to find the wayward sheep, and then once found, he joyfully carries it back home. Peter assures us, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, but is patient with us, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. I thank God he didn't abandon me during those first 22 years when I rebelled against him. And after that, I thank God he didn't leave me behind when I fouled up and fell far short of his standards. I thank God that he was patient with me. And he's patient with you too. Look at verse 27 with me. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose 
I came to this hour. Jesus begins by saying something absolutely astounding. He says, my soul is troubled. He knew that he was facing suffering and death, and his humanity responded to this ordeal. His soul was troubled, not because he was questioning the Father's will, but because he, he and he alone was fully conscious of all that the cross involved. All the Gospels agree in telling us that as the cross drew near, Jesus began to be deeply troubled. He declared that he had a baptism to be baptized with, and he was distressed until that was accomplished. In Gethsemane, he prayed three separate times that the cup he was about to drink might pass from him. Now, the death of Christ is the subject of the New Testament. Roughly one-fifth of the material in the Gospel accounts is devoted to the events of the last few days of his life. The death and resurrection of the Lord is the climatic point to which all the previous material concerning his life leads, and from which the Acts and all the Epistles flow from. Of all the Christian truths, the death of Christ accompanied by his resurrection is the most cherished. Now, why would I say that? Had he not died, there would have been no substitute for sin. Were there no substitute, there would be no salvation. Where there was no salvation, there would be no hope. And where there is no hope, there would be no future but hell. But instead, he offers us an eternal life of bliss that we cannot even fully comprehend. Now that word trouble there literally means to shake or to stir up. We had the same word back in John 5, 7 where it describes the stirring up of the pool of Bethesda. It is a strong word used figuratively to speak of the severe mental or spiritual agitation of the person. It speaks of being disturbed, upset, unsettled, or even horrified. Let's pause and think about this for a second. This is not just a mere man. This is the Son of God. This is the Christ. This is the one who stilled the raging waves of Galilee and then rebuked his disciples for the lack of faith. This is the one who heals lepers and sends demons scurrying into pigs. This is the one who walks on water and raises people from the dead. This is the one who walked through rioting crowds led by men intent on his death. And yet this is the same Jesus who in a short while will tell his disciples, Do not let your heart be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Now, if you're thinking, this may cause you to ask a question. We have to ask ourselves, how can this be? How can the one who turns to us to say, let not your hearts be troubled, say of himself, now my heart is troubled? It seems incongruous, even inconsistent. But it is not inconsistent when we realize what it was that Christ was dreading. You see, it was not his physical death so much that he dreaded. It was his spiritual death. Now, keep in mind in the Bible, death does not mean extinction. It just means separation. Now, what do I mean? Well, when we die, our souls will be separated from our bodies. And furthermore, when the Bible speaks of the second death, that is when the unsaved will be separated from God forever. 
So with that in mind, how could the one who had never known one second of unbroken fellowship with his father, who had never sinned, peacefully contemplate the hour in which he should be made sin for us? And in which that fellowship that he had would at least for a time be broken. This is like a live grenade that he throws himself on. He knows that in order to save mankind, he must sacrifice himself. Did you know that during the Vietnam War, one man received the Medal of Honor because as he was surrounded by the enemy, he called in an airstrike on his own position, sacrificing himself. And is that not a picture of Calvary? Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm that describes the crucifixion of Christ. Listen to verse 12. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. Like that Medal of Honor recipient, Jesus was also surrounded by enemies, which, by the way, at one time represents everybody in this room. And in a sense, he called down the fire of God's wrath and sacrificed himself for the good of us all. Look at verse 28 with me. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore, the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice had not come because of me, but for your sake. This is the third time the voice of the Father thunders from heaven. The first time was at Jesus' baptism at the beginning of his ministry. The second time was on the Mount of Transfiguration in the middle of his ministry. And the third time here is at the end of his ministry as he talks about the cross. But really, all three of these occasions speak ultimately of his death. In baptism, Jesus was saying, in effect, I submit to the death and burial that I know awaits me. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Luke tells us he talked with Moses and Elijah about his death. And here at the end, Jesus struggles with the cross. Well, God responds to Jesus' reckless act of faith with a confirmation of a thundering voice. We read, Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I both glorified it, and I will glorify it again. It's as if God is recalling all of his acts from the time of creation through history of the children of Israel and into the miracles of Jesus himself. And now God lets his son know that he has not lost his power to deliver those who put their faith in him. I have glorified in thy name and I will glorify it again is the promise of the power of that action in the future. Now, a day or so later, he'll have to kneel all alone in the Garden of Gethsemane, struggling with the agony of this cross. Yet this time, no voice will be heard from heaven. No angels will come to minister to him. And add just one more day, when Jesus is on the cross, God will not only remain silent, but even will remove the spiritual supports so that Jesus feels forsaken and totally alone. That teaches us that God always comes to us at our level of need. When our faith is the weakest and our humanity is most vulnerable, then he will come to us with the confirmation of a thundering voice through his word or another Christian. But where our faith is strong and where our humanity is given to God, he may ask us to just trust him in the silence. 
That's not really God, said the crowd. It's just thunder. They didn't understand. Neither will they understand when you say, you know, the Father's really been speaking to me. But just because the crowd mistakes it for thunder, that doesn't negate the truth of what God has been speaking to your heart. And really, the crowd's inability to understand God's voice illustrates the hard-heartedness that was typical of the people at that time, who had likewise failed to hear the voice of God's Word and His Son. My friends, I don't think the issue is not that God is silent, but that falling sinful people are deaf. I never hear from God people say, He never speaks to me. Here's the question. Where do we stand in relation to the cross? Are we dying to self or are we living for self? The one who dies to self is going to hear the heart and voice of the Father as it resonates within his inner man. People sometimes say that God doesn't speak like he used to. Maybe it's just we don't listen like we used to. Now at first glance, the Lord's statement does seem puzzling. Since the voice came in response to his prayer, Father, glorify your name, how could Jesus now say that it was not for his sake? Well, in keeping with Jewish vernacular, the meaning appears to be the voice did not come exclusively for his sake, since he did not need to hear the Father's audible voice to know that his prayer was answered. This voice came mainly to strengthen the faith of those nearby. We might translate verse 30, that voice came more for your sake than for mine. As we finish up today, author Dane Ortland writes, Christ's own joy, comfort, happiness, and glory are increased by his showing grace and mercy in pardoning, relieving, and comforting his members here on earth. Ortland then gives the following illustration. Imagine that a compassionate doctor has traveled deep into the jungle to provide medical care to a primitive tribe afflicted with a contagious disease. He has his own medical equipment flown in, he has correctly diagnosed the problem, and the antibiotics are prepared and available. He is independently wealthy and needs no kind of any kind of financial compensation. But as he seeks to provide the care, those who are afflicted refuse the care. They want to take care of themselves. They want to heal themselves on their own terms. But finally, a few brave men step forward to receive the care being freely offered. What does that doctor feel? Joy. His joy increases to the degree that the sick come to him for help and healing. It's the whole reason that he came. So with us, and so with Christ. He does not get flustered and frustrated when we come to him for fresh forgiveness, for renewed pardon with distress and need and emptiness. That's the whole point. It's what he came to heal. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that you are the great physician. You even said that it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And we are all sick to one degree to another. Some are sick in that they are unsaved and still bound up in sin. Some of us are sick with sinful struggles and weaknesses. So we ask you to be that healing balm of Gilead and to make yourself known to us at our point of need. And we ask this in your name. Amen.